I'm going to turn over to John 4. That's where we're starting today in verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of the labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. After two days, he left Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the, Gal- the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Canaan and Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Amen. Thank you, Adam. Let's pray together. Father, we really need you this morning. We could say that every day that our eyes open. We need you today, but as we have looked at and had read this passage, we recognize what Jesus does when he comes into Samaria, into places that we didn't expect him to go. And Father, we look at the place that we live, the areas in this part of the country, in the research triangle, in Durham, and Cary, and Raleigh, and, and Fuquay, and the outlying areas. We, we look at our area and we see how many people are moving in, Father. And we would just ask that as they are moving in, that you would be moving in. Go to places where Jesus is not being loved and preached and send us into places where Jesus is not being loved and shared and preached and demonstrated by life and words. And so this morning we are faced off with our commission as a people who already know Jesus to go to people that do not know Jesus And it is a fearful thing, Lord. It is a difficult task. It is a calling that each of us have to go 
where your name is not being known, loved, and preached. And, and Father, I pray that you would just so move on our hearts this morning from the Bible, from the life and work of Jesus and his disciples and the work in Samaria and the lives that were changed and the destinies that were shaped by this movement called the way of Jesus, the new kingdom, and the life that you preached. Uh, Father, I pray that over us this morning, that, that, a, that a new spirit of the harvester, a desire to go into the fields, a desire to see men and women come to know and love Jesus and know and be loved by Jesus. Father, I pray that would sweep over us, that it would be a burden that we carry, a good yet real burden in our lives. And I pray for each of us who right now would be thinking of a litany of excuses as to why we're not able to or we won't live this way. Father, knock down all those excuses and really do something in the heart of those who follow Jesus to give us a heart for the simple gospel to share it in whatever way possible through our words and deeds and life and love and pursuit of others. Just as we were singing this morning, Lord, just thinking about you being a God who, who won't stop at anything to continue to pursue us with your love, your prodigal, lavish love. God, I know that you often pursue people through people. And we are those people. We are the men and women to whom you would say, I'm pursuing the world through you. I'm showing my love and demonstrating my pursuing love that would leave the 99 through this group, this company of men and women who have the Holy Spirit, who know the gospel, who love and are loved by Jesus. So Father, this morning, it is my earnest desire and prayer that a movement would come upon me and us by the Holy Spirit. A revival would happen in our hearts that we would obey the words of Jesus and that we would not say, Four months and then the harvest, but we would lift up our eyes for the fields that are white for the harvest. Show us how to live into this, Lord. This is truth. We want to live by it and be shaped by it. We ask for your help now to not just be hearers of the word, but doers. Be such a tragedy to listen and listen and hear and think and read and never live according to these scriptures, this truth and I pray that we would live this, that, that the life of God would be lived through us today. So Father, convict us, shape us, direct us, give us wisdom and how we ought to live out this truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name, we all said together, amen, amen. So this passage and the ideas in John chapter 4 that I've been confronted with this week, uh, just reading this and having it read is already convicting, but add to that I listened to a sermon by Francis Chan on evangelism, and if you want to mess your life up, go ahead and listen to Francis Chan preaching on evangelism, and then I've been reading and rereading this book that I really like uh, by Jeff Vanderstelt called Gospel Fluency, How to Speak the Gospel of Jesus in the Everyday Stuff of Life, and so Mind you then, that's kind of the place I'm coming from, having read this and had those influence this week. I am I'm feeling very convicted in my life in an area where I feel like I'm sort of failing as a follower of Jesus. And I just want to confess that because it's something, uh, when you recognize an area in your life where you're not doing so well as a follower of Jesus, then you, you ask God to bring people around you and, and to really move on you in a way that that's not going to be the same story I keep on telling, like I'm still not doing so well in that. And the area that I find myself feeling very convicted 
is this, this area, what we call in the church, evangelism. Telling people who don't know Jesus about him. This uh, word evangelism, we'll talk about a lot this morning because it's really in our text, is a Greek word which is euangelion. And it actually, the original word is it actually euangelion just means good news or those who go about preaching the good news. Evangelism or evangel is the good news. It's, it's being a herald of the gospel. And there was a time in my life where I radically lived in this. And it was right after I started following Jesus my junior year in high school. And because of the radical love of God, his pursuit over me, his grace in my life, uh, my reaction was just to go tell people about the reckless, beautiful grace and love of God that he had he had given to me. And so right after I became a Christian, I kind of dissed all my non-Christian dudes and I, I made a couple of new friends, a John Shepherd and a Luke Frankel, some Christian guys at my school, and we kind of banded together and we started Bible studies and prayer meetings and sort of saw a mini revival happening at our school. We, we didn't know anything. We just knew, we knew the simple gospel. We were declaring it. We were trying to love people. And, and with our zeal, we went out. And it was a radical time of my life. I was going out into our small town and, and doing street evangelism and uh, really kind of a two to four year period of time in my life where man, Jesus was just center. I remember there was this one particular girl that I went out on a date with. I don't even remember her name because in my zeal, I agreed to go on the date so I could preach the gospel to her. I'm, I'm not ser- I'm serious. That's just, and it was the weirdest date she had ever been on because I heard reports later of how strange the date was because I took her out to a lake and she thought I was trying to get her out in the wilderness to kiss her or whatever. And uh, nah, like the whole time I was just Jesus, Jesus, and then Jesus, and then you must be born again. And, and she was stuck in this car ride out to this lake in the middle of the woods. And that was just the first two to four years of my life in Jesus going to the, the local mall. And we would circle a bunch of people over and we're just like, Jesus just wants to, to fill you. We'd be praying for people in the middle of the mall and downtown in the streets. And, and then something happened when I was about 20 years old. So from about 17... 16, 17 to 20, I was out there being this John the Baptist, kind of didn't care about my reputation, just Jesus was everything. And then I got hired by my church. And something very strange started to happen to me because I got put in a place, I was the high school youth pastor over 200 high school kids. And so my job now was sort of to be a spiritual mentor to a bunch of Christian high school kids at the whopping age of 20. And uh, my job, we had a criteria, we had like a quota we had to meet. We had to take these kids on a trip a week. We had to do in-school Bible studies. And so suddenly I found myself as an activity director for a bunch of high school kids. And all summer long, we're going to Mexico and doing houseboat trips and theme parks and going down rivers and having a great time. But I found that I was less and less around unsaved, non-Jesus following men and women. And I wasn't preaching the gospel other than the kids who might come to our youth group and get saved, which was awesome, but I wasn't out there like I used to be. It was sort of a sad time in my life. Uh, something inside of me was uh, sort of withering. And then, and then I had this period, several years after that, where I was going to go try to start a church. And you know, go try to start a church. That'll put the fear of God in you. And uh, I went to none other than Portland, Oregon, a very unchurched place uh, in, in the Northwest. And I had no idea what I was doing. So I grabbed our core team and I said, every Saturday we're going to get together at this local coffee shop and I would hand out maps of Southeast Portland and we'd go 
we'd partner up and pray and strategize and pick the neighborhoods we're going to go through. And then we'd go two by two, door to door, for Saturday after Saturday, rain or shine with umbrellas, knocking on doors, getting doors slammed in our face, getting cursed at, get ridiculed. People thought we were idiots. And, you know, there was a few times we'd get invited in. We'd have a radical prayer meeting. But it was rough for two years, just kind of beating the streets. And uh, did that, and, and, and though it was difficult, um, well, it was very life-giving. There's nothing like going out there on the edge and, and interacting with people that don't believe like you to, to really kind of shake your soul. But that was 10 years ago, you guys, that I was doing that. It's been 10 years since I've knocked on a door and said, hey, my name is Brian. I live right here in this neighborhood, and I'm just here to talk to you about the good news of Jesus. Have you heard it? Do you know him? And, 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 and engage in that conversation. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. And 10 years ago, and, and as I've been kind of unpacking this and, and reading and thinking and asking God to, to really do something in me, um, I felt the Lord nudge me this week. I mean, hard, like that kind of like, you kind of get sick to your stomach. And I, 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 one morning this week, I ended up, sometimes I can't sleep very well, so I get up, getting up super early. What do you do at like four in the morning? So I just started reading my Bible and watching a sermon. And uh, the sermon just so wrecked me. I just found, I was like leaning over my desk, just almost out of breath, just like, oh God, help me. Like I gotta do something about this. You ever felt that? When was the last time that something just, Sucker punched you. I mean, just, God help me. I, I've got to be better for you in this way. And, and, and so this has just been really sort of a, a thing that's been happening to me this week. And I just have felt the Spirit of God nudge me and say, get back out there. It's time to get back out there, man. And uh, I'm hoping and praying that a bunch of you will come with me and uh, we'll, we'll conspire together how to do better in this calling of Jesus over our life. And so uh, really what I want to do is we've read this passage um, just focusing on the words of Jesus. Verse 35, again, Adam read for us. Um, verse 35, Jesus says, Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. And, and I believe that is as true as the moment Jesus said it. It's true today. Um, a, a statistic recently has come out. Uh, it's something like 69 people move to the research triangle, the triangle area. 69 people every day. Many of them not followers of Jesus, moving in to us, to this community, every day. And uh, so you, me knowing that, fortunate for me, I just this week got connected up with a couple of pastors in my neighborhood, and, and I, I was like, I got to do this. So I was like, guys, when are we going to walk our neighborhood together and start sharing the gospel? So I have an appointment on Wednesday with two local pastors, and we're just going to walk around the neighborhood and share the love of Jesus. Because I don't know what else to do about stuff than just to do something about it. Because um, you can, you can kind of talk about it the rest of your life. You probably have things. You know, you have, do you ever have that person that you keep saying to them, hey, we should get together. And there's something in your brain that says whenever you say we should that you did, check. No, no, you keep saying that and you never do it. And sometimes I feel like the Lord just says, just go do it. And so I'm that kind of person. If I get really convicted about something, I'm like, I might do it wrong. It may, not, it may not look pretty, but I'm going to do something. And, and that's kind of the spirit in which I find myself this, this week and with this passage. And so the way I want to approach this morning is we'll spend a little time unpacking the John 4 section that Adam read. And then I just want to address two questions about evangelism. The two questions are simply this, should I and how should I? And you might know the answers to those, you might not. I think the text has something 
to say to us. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And so let's start with the John 4 passage that we're reading this morning. Um, And that is, remember from last week, Jesus is sitting at a well in Sychar, in this area of Samaria. And this woman has come to him at noon, and he starts this conversation with her to find out that the woman has been married five times and has a live-in boyfriend. And this event uh, that Jesus encounters her, um, eventually he tells her that the water that she's going to draw from the well, she'll have to keep coming back for more. But he has water to give her. He calls it living water. That if she would drink of that water, she'd never be thirsty again. And she's like, I want this water. And they have this dialogue. And we see this radical transformation in this woman. And I want to show you from the text how this woman was transformed in her relationship with Jesus. Because it's really several titles she gives him. So when she first comes to Jesus, note uh, down in our text in verse 11, she calls him just simply verse 9, excuse me, verse 9. She just says, you are a Jew. She, basically, she's just identifying, you and I are a different race. You're a Jew. But then, as they keep talking, it goes from you're a Jew to, she calls him verse 11, sir, to then verse 19, she says, I perceive you're a prophet. So, so she's changing, transforming her views of Jesus from you're a Jew, okay, sir, to I perceive you're a prophet. And then verse 29, she calls him the Messiah. And then verse 42, the Savior of the world. Coming to Jesus is a progression. That is, we continue to learn more and more about who Jesus is. And there is something to respect the journey. I'm glad when anybody is willing to engage me on the subject of Jesus. Not everybody is where you're at on the journey towards Jesus. Some people think, yeah, Jesus, this Jesus, he was a historical figure. We'll give you that. Some will even say he was a good teacher. We, we admire Jesus. A lot of people admire Jesus. And then some will even say, yes, he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the promised one. And then others, us maybe in this room, will say, he's the Savior. He's my Savior. This is the journey this woman is on. And I respect the journey of people. And, and I want Emmaus to continue to be the kind of church that allows people to have a space to process who Jesus is. We're going to keep preaching who Jesus is, talking about who Jesus is, learning about who Jesus is. But, but, but the journey is, is that not everybody, when they first meet Jesus, is ready to say Savior of the world. But that's where we pray everybody would go. And so we want to be a place that just says, hey, come on. If, you, if you're on a journey, if you're on a spiritual journey, join us. We think we have some answers. We're growing in Jesus ourselves, and we want to look at the book and look at Jesus and grow. And so Jesus, really, within just a few moments, so sees this woman go from you're a Jew to you're the Savior of the world. Radical transformation there in Samaria. But I want to notice for a moment just the effect that Jesus has in the story on three groups. First, the disciples, then the Samaritan woman, as we mentioned, and then the Samaritan village. So three responses to Jesus just from this story. First of all, there was the disciples. The disciples were surprised. Actually, verse 27 says that they were surprised when they show up and Jesus is having a conversation with a woman. An ancient rabbi in the first century didn't talk to women. And so they'd come 
back from getting food in town. They've got their Chick-fil-A all ready to go, and they got Jesus some. They, they got him his waffle fries and his chicken sandwich and his frosted lemonade. Oh, man, isn't that the best thing God ever invented on the earth, the frosted lemonade at Chick-fil-A. And so they, they come back with their food, and they're surprised to see Jesus is having a conversation with the woman. They're so surprised because that's just not the way that he should be doing it, a Jewish man with a Samaritan woman. But no one's brave enough to ask him why he's doing it. But it says they were surprised. And they say, Master, here, eat. And then he says something else that surprises them. He said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they're like looking at each other like, somebody brought him food before we got here. We must have taken too long in the drive-thru. He's already eaten. And he says, no, no, you don't get it. My meat, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. In other words, this conversation I had with this woman is like heavenly food. I, I'm not even hungry anymore because I'm so satisfied in doing the work of God. And, and they're surprised that the woman, they're surprised that he said he's already eaten. And then he says to them, and no more of this saying four months and then comes the harvest. Lift up your eyes. The fields are ripe. Go, I sent you. Jesus said, I sent you to reap. And a lot of times when we talk about gospel work, evangelism, we talk about you know, sowing and watering. But Jesus said, I've actually sent you to reap. In other words, disciples, I've sent you to go out and bring people into the kingdom of heaven. So there's all these analogies, all these confusing things, and the disciples at once encounter Jesus, and they are, if you would, surprised. And I would say this to us this morning. If you're continuing to follow Jesus and you're not continually surprised, then you're not paying attention. Jesus is always surprising us. Loving people you don't understand, going places you wouldn't go, doing things you wouldn't do. Jesus is surprising and, and the disciples are continuing to find surprises around every corner. Um, and then... Number two, not only do we see the disciples were surprised, but the Samaritan woman, I love this, she left her jar, verse 28. I mean, she left her water jar. She had come to the well to get water, but it's as if to say when she met Jesus, he became so much to her that she forgot the reason she even came to the well. She came to get water, but after she met Jesus and he offered her living water, she forgot why she was there in the first place. She goes back into her town and tells everybody about Jesus. Now what's amazing is that sometimes the most effective time in your life is right after you've had a fresh encounter with Jesus. The lady knew practically nothing about Jesus. She had had you know, a 10, 15, 20 minute conversation with him. I mean, if you read this text, you know it wasn't a very long conversation. But in that amount of time, Jesus had so transformed her that she was ready to go be an evangelist. She goes back home, and what does she know about Jesus? Look, look at what her message is. Come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? And you know how effective she was? Look, verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of her testimony. What was her testimony? I met a man who told me everything I've ever did. I think this is the Messiah. And then a bunch of people believe. It's amazing how effective you are in your life shortly after you've met Jesus. You don't know anything. And I was listening to um, Francis Chan talk about his journey, and he talked about um, going to seminary and how seminary was the three darkest years of his life. Apparently he dropped out early or something. Um, Bible college, seminary, because of how much he had lost the heart 
of, of the gospel message. And, and it's amazing how effective we are, I, I was, right after I met Jesus. Um, how influential. I, I know that, uh, you know, having been a, a, an assisting pastor at a big church for a long time, I used to see this phenomenon sweep our church every once in a while where there'd be one guy or one girl who would get radically saved out of a pretty radical life and they would come to our church and then all of a sudden you would just see them every week just amassing groups of people. So I remember there was this one guy named Justin Savoy and uh, he was like your our, for our town, he was like the bad boy. He like was in the paper uh, for doing bad boy stuff, things that bad boys do. He was all sleeved out and just scary looking, big, tall, lanky guy, like um, gangbanger kind of guy, just rugged dude. And uh, Justin gets radically saved, but he doesn't change his appearance and he just so- shows up to our church just like he was in the street. But he's smiling. And he had this smile. Everybody remembered him for the smile. We used to call it his Moglo. And he would just smile. I mean, he, he looked like he could kill you and would and take your money and your car and your wife and everything. But now he just comes in, he's smiling. And, and man, I remember he'd be a big old, real lanky, tall guy, hands up, just as high as he could wave them, just smiling and never just eyes closed, tears streaming down his face every week. And he was a vigorous Bible student. And a vigorous evangelist, he just started bringing his homeboys, roughnecks from the neighborhood, coming to church. And I remember just thinking, every week they're getting baptized, and they're, 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 they're meeting Jesus. And this guy just got saved, and he was, just, he was bringing revival to us. Man, I pray that God would bring us that radical person in this community. Where's the Samaritan, the roughneck, the person, the man, the woman, who God just wants to move on, and he just wants to use us to go, hey, come on to the well, drink the living water, and they're going to drink and taste. And like this woman, that first zeal, I've met Jesus, I've tasted and seen that he's good, that, that has a way of just bringing people in. That's good, isn't it? That's good when that happens. And that's what happens to Jesus here in this story. He brings this woman and she brings a bunch of people. Then we notice that thirdly, the Samaritans receive Jesus as Savior, verse 39 through 42. It's a great story of an entire community being changed when one woman met Jesus, then went back home and said, hey, come on, we, I've met Jesus. This is probably the Messiah. And you know what's great about Jesus? Is he stays two days in that town. In Samaria, he stays there two days with them. And they all become, a bunch of them become believers as he begins to speak the words of life to them. Could you imagine the disciples being one of Jesus' disciples, spending a couple of days in Samaria, which was a cultural no-no. Like Jews and Samaritans, they don't mix. It'd be like, you know, if you and I were on a trip, just happened to be in Iran. <laughs> so just, we're in Iran, 99.4% Muslim. And Jesus asks us to stay there for a couple of nights and just share the truth of Jesus and his love and, and, and a bunch of Iranians and Muslims start getting saved? Wouldn't that be radical? That's essentially what's happening here. They've crossed racial, religious, and, and ideological borders and, and Jesus is just encountering these men and women here in Samaria. So that's our text and, and the questions though that I want us to deal with are, are the more difficult part of the sermon this morning because they're not just confronting you, they're confronting me. They may be confronting me more than anybody. But the questions we want to address is should I and how should I when it comes to going and proclaiming the good news of Jesus 
in the world, um, what we call evangelism. Um, so let's start with should I. What, what do you think the answer is to that? Should you evangelize? Okay, I, I, I'm glad that we at least know that because I'm going to tell you why I think that's true. But the thing that can happen to me when, when we talk about this question is I can use a bunch of theological pastoral dodges because I can be like, well, you know, in Ephesians 4, Paul said he gave the fivefold ministry, pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, for the, the edifying of the saints for the work of the ministry. That is, my job is to equip you. I'm, I'm to equip you so that you can go out and evangelize. And so the fact that we haven't filled this theater with unsaved people yet is your fault, not mine. It's, it's all y'all's fault. You should be out there saving people, bringing people to Jesus, pursuing your neighbors at work and, 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 and in your neighborhood. And, and you, sh- you should be doing the work of the evangelist. You should be out there proclaiming the gospel. And then Emmaus could really start to see revival and growth. And I can blame you for that. But then you can turn around and you can blame me. You can be like, oh no, like that's what we pay you for, preacher. You're supposed to be our evangelist. You're supposed to go out there and reach people for the gospel. And you know what, what's happening? We just keep on pointing the finger at each other. No, it's your job. No, it's your job. No, it's your job. And God says, it's all your job. It's our job. And, and, then, and then here's where my mind goes. Well, I go, well, you know, Ephesians 4 says that there are evangelists and that's not my spiritual gift. Ah, uh, not it. Or I'm not an extrovert like Michael Cologne. Michael Cologne should be winning people to Jesus. He's the evangelist of Emmaus. It's his fault that more people aren't coming to Jesus at Emmaus. It's Michael and he's a get out there. Michael, what are you doing, man? Go get some folks for Jesus. And then we'll all sit back and say, we'll pray for you. Because my gift is pastor teacher. So Michael, you want to talk about your feelings? You want to open the Bible? Let's do that. But Michael, you got to go out there and tell people. Because you're extroverted. You're an evangelist. And, and yet the Bible doesn't give us those kinds of outs. Introvert, extrovert, computer programmer, teacher, barista, student, whoever you are in whatever field, in the medical field, we are all called to go out as gospel bearers. Every single one of us is on the hook. I'm on the hook. You're on the hook. This is the call of Jesus. Now, the Bible says this repeatedly that we are to be those who go out with the gospel news. Paul the Apostle told Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, do the work of an evangelist. Not, Timothy, you are an evangelist, therefore stir up your gift. He says, no, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Go be a euangelion, a gospel bearer. Go tell the world good news. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation. What I'm not ashamed of, I will declare. What I believe, I will declare. Paul says, I am not ashamed because I believe that the gospel itself has the power, the dunamis, the dynamite, the explosive power to bring salvation. Jesus commissioned his followers. Look back at our text. Verse 35 again. He says, don't say it's still four months and then the harvest. He says, open your eyes. Look at the fields, they're ripe. For the harvest, even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvest for a crop of eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together, thus the saying, one sows and another reaps. That's true, but notice Jesus says, I sent you to what? To what? To reap, verse 38, what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. You know, there is work out there for us to do. 
in reaping the harvest. Jesus compels his disciples to do that. Again, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, we call it the Great Commission. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. You say, well, that was what Jesus said to his disciples. But let's pay attention to what Jesus said to his disciples. You disciples, go make disciples that will make disciples. If a disciple makes a disciple, then that disciple will make another disciple. You following that logic? So that means if we draw our discipleship to Jesus back to the apostles, then Matthew chapter 28 belongs to all of us because you were discipled by a disciple of a disciple who's been commissioned to go make disciples and baptize in the name of Jesus. Proverbs chapter 11 verse 30 says, He who wins souls is wise. Daniel chapter 12 verse 3 says, Those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. You know, and Jesus in another place actually told his disciples to pray for, pray for the hearts of men and women to go out into the harvest field. Jesus said in so many words, there's nothing wrong with the harvest field. It's full. The problem is I can't find people who will go out there. Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 and 38. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, therefore to send out workers into his harvest field. That should be our prayer. Don't just pray it, though. You may be the answer to the prayer that you're praying. God, I pray that you would send out workers to the harvest field. And the Lord says, what about you? Will you go? Will you do the work of an evangelist? Will you win souls? Will you win many to righteousness and shine like the stars? Will you obey the great commission to go into the world and make disciples that make disciples? See him baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commands? Will you and I take up this mantle, or will we use a theological dodge and say, not it, not an evangelist? I believe this is a call for the church. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, another place where Jesus tells his disciples, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you are going to be my witnesses. You are going to go out and witness for me. You are, going to, you are going to demonstrate my life. And when Jesus said this, he wasn't saying it to the elite, to the apostles, to the leaders. He was saying it to the whole church. Everybody. The Holy Spirit's going to come on you and you're going to go be my witnesses in this world. The Bible says in the book of Acts, chapter 20, I believe, as this church was lit on fire by the Holy Spirit, going into the world as witnesses, they, it was reported in Jason's house, they that have turned the world upside down have come here as well. In other words, there was a group of ordinary men and women, 120 of them, that were, it's, the report was they're turning the world on its head. Full of the Holy Spirit, obeying the commandment of Jesus to go out into the world. Ordinary men and women, not apostles, all of them, not disciples in the way the original 12, just men and women called by Jesus going out and seeing many, many come to Jesus Christ. Listen to our pastor Paul as we follow him, as he follows Christ. Listen to what he said about his calling and, and thus ours, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. As if God wanted to send a message to the world, and he said, you, you go. I am going to make my appeal to the world through you. In another place, Paul writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. In other words, it doesn't matter. There's woe in my soul when I'm not actively proclaiming the euangelion, the good news of Jesus. 
And then finally, I could go on and on. Peter calls us to readiness, 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Can we say amen to that? Say amen or ouch, right? One or the other. But I want to live into this, brothers and sisters. And, you know, the, the easy way out is to say, I, w- I want to I um, preach the gospel through my lifestyle. Yes, and you have to speak something, though. You can't just open doors for old ladies. That's actually really popular in the South. Very hospitable here. Um, you aren't going to just live people into the kingdom by your lifestyle. Now, you shouldn't have a lame lifestyle. You should be good. You should be kind. You should do good works. Our good works should glorify God, and people should see our good works. But you got to open your mouth. You cannot be a euangelion without speaking something. So the answer to evangelism, should I, the answer is yes. The next question comes, how should I? How should I? I mean, do I have to go door to door with you, Brian? Yes, no. (laughs) Although Michael called me the other day or texted me or something. He's like, I have some Jehovah's Witnesses at my house. And man, that's weird stuff. And man, they're doing a good job. And I thought, man, really they are. I mean, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, they're sending the, the cream of the crop, the best of their young people in the Mormon church, they send them on a mission to another place. Some of them will learn another language for the primary reason. They don't get paid to do this. They have to raise money to do it. The primary reason they learn Spanish is to go into a Hispanic community. A white boy from Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah, will ride his bike in the dead, hot heat of North Carolina summer door to door sweating on his bicycle and speaking Spanish, having learned Spanish to preach a false gospel. Is that the way we should go? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't. But, but, the, but the, the real question for me is, is, as I look at Jesus, I say, how was it that Jesus did it? Well, I would say as we look at the story, we see this is Jesus going to a well. Jesus was doing something he had to do anyway. He was thirsty. It was noon. It was hot. He went to a well. You start thinking about the things that you have to do anyway. The grocery store that you have to go to. The job you have to go to. The barista you have to buy your latte from. The places you already go. Those are the places where I would say, Jesus would say, lift up your head from your stinking iPhone. Man, that probably one of the worst Uh, causes of us not evangelizing is technology i mean next time you're in a place put your phone away and just start looking around and look at how many people won't even look at you this is what we do when we're uncomfortable and jesus would say lift up your eyes in the places you already have to go it's not and and i would just challenge you in the places you already have to go the neighborhood you drive into the grocery store you go to the the workplaces you're at lift up your eyes and say Jesus, are there people that I see all the time? I buy that same cup of coffee from that same barista. I heard one guy, local guy, um, well, at least he was local. He moved away, um, named Matt Boyd. Um, He told me, Brian, I never pay for my gas at the pump because I want to know the lady that that I, you know, I want to exchange with the human to buy my gas. So inconvenient, yes, but he knows the gas attendants and he goes to the same gas station on purpose. He doesn't switch gas stations because he wants to know the lady behind the counter and realizes she's here and when I have to get my gas, I'm already here anyway, might as well. It's noon, it's the well, it's hot, I'm thirsty. So I think there is something to be said about using the places that you already have to go in life. 
But then Jesus engages the people that are around him in that place. He asks the woman for a drink. He actually talks to somebody. He looks up from his iPhone. He, he's friendly. He asks questions. He's engaged. And this is where Jeff Vanderstelt's book, Gospel Fluency, is really helpful. It's basically how to speak the gospel in every situation. How to use the situation that you find yourself in in a conversation that might just be talking about lattes or the weather or sports or politics and turning it to, use, to, to talk kingdom. So Jesus engages those around him and then he uses the ordinary to speak the eternal. I love this. Jesus just starts off by saying, hey, give me something to drink. And she's like, well, this is weird. You're a man and a Jew and you shouldn't be talking to me. And he goes, ah, here's, here's my inn. Somehow Jesus saw an inn for the kingdom at that very ordinance, be at a drinking fountain, he found an inn for the kingdom. Then ask Jesus to revolutionize the way you think. Paul said, pray for me that I might have a door of utterance open for me that I could preach the gospel. Jesus found ways to speak about kingdom in everything. He'd say, hey, you see that man out there sowing seed? That reminds me of the kingdom. You see this well? That reminds me of the kingdom. Always telling stories that he linked ordinary events back to kingdom reality. He just says, woman, I, give me something to drink. And then he turns this into a whole story about living water. And, and, and I would say just pray that God would help you get in conversations. Not, Jesus wasn't giving a sales pitch. He was having a conversation with a real person about the real events that they were facing. And he was able to gospel it. He was able to euangelion it. I, I would guess that y'all know enough now that you could speak some life into every situation, even if it's very brief. And asking God how to help you do it in a non-cheeseball way. But if your whole life is worried about the cool factor, then you'll never do stuff. You're going to feel awkward about speaking outside of your comfort zones. Especially when it comes to eternal life. But pray that God would help you to engage the places that you find yourself. And I would suggest to you that um, one way to do this is through hospitality. Inviting people into your life. Um, especially in your neighborhood building relational capital, being genuinely interested in people. It's amazing how people respond when you actually show interest in them and letting the gospel come out naturally. If you're living in the gospel, then that's, that's your second language. In Vanderstelt's book, he talks about how you become fluent in a second language. So if your original language is English and let's say you're trying to learn Spanish, the best way to become fluent is to go move to a country where that's the language they speak. And be around a community where all you speak is Spanish. That's how he talks about he became fluent in Spanish. In the gospel, we become fluent by being around a gospel community. Being around men and women who when they talk, they're talking about things outside of just the natural. But speaking about the gospel and how Jesus would view this. And, and learning to be a community that when we interact with each other, we're not always just interacting with the natural. We're becoming gospel fluent. We're saturating our souls in the language of heaven. But then the final, I would just point out in Jesus' interaction with this woman and evangelism, Jesus was led by the Spirit. He had a word of knowledge for this woman. And there are times you might be interacting with people, say it's your waitress at uh, Olive Garden or whatever. She keeps coming back, say if you want your salad bowl refilled or whatever. And, and, and God just allows you to build a little bit of rapport. You're being nice. You're not staring at your phone. You're paying attention to the people around you. And you get in this conversation with this woman, you maybe find out something about her. And maybe God just gives you a word of knowledge like he did here with Jesus. Jesus says to the woman, go call your husband. I don't have one. That could have been end of discussion. Oh, you're single and unmarried. 
Jesus had a word of knowledge. He said, I know. Here's what you've been through. You've been married and divorced and married and divorced and married and divorced five times. What a brutal thing. Any, anyone here who's been divorced knows how brutal divorce is. I grew up in a very divorced family. My, both of my parents married multiple times. Uh, I've seen stepbrothers and stepmoms and stepdads and stepgrandparents. I don't even know who I am, where I come from, who belongs to me, what my family tree looks like. We're all step, 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 and oh, now they're divorced. And this woman had been through this hell five times. And Jesus had a word of knowledge for her. I know, five painful divorces, broken life. The man you're with now, not even married to. I mean, how's a woman in the first century, having been married five times, ever going to find a husband? It's amazing she's found five. Now she's just ostracized. But Jesus had something for this woman. He, he had a word of knowledge for her. And sometimes when we're out in the world, God has us out there to speak as he making his appeal through us. If you don't believe God ever wants to say anything through you, then you'll probably likely never be bold enough to ask him when you're in the middle of a conversation, God, do you have something for this person that I might be able to speak life into them? That's, that's what Jesus does. That's part of walking in the Spirit. You know, in America, as I draw to a close, one of the unfortunate things, I was with a group of pastors. I took Jacob Choupe with me. We had kind of an interesting time there with about 50 past local pastors, uh, just kind of hearing their perspectives. Um, and, and we were bringing up the statistic that 69 or something like that, new people move into the triangle every day. And if, if we were seeing many people come to Jesus, none of us have enough space in our churches to fit everybody that could come to Jesus. So there's no competition, right? We're all collaborating to say, fill the theater. If we fill this theater, we run out of space. We could do two services, maybe, but they won't rent it to us that long. So I would say, well, then, God, do something in that church. And, you know, so we're talking, having this conversation and, and talking about church growth. That's always kind of an uncomfortable and interesting conversation to have with pastors from, like, some of the biggest churches in the Triangle. And here we are, a little Emmaus, like, don't ask us about attendance here because I know you have, you're running, like, four or 5,000, whatever. Um, so we're sitting there listening, and uh, the one thing that I think about, you know, that's interesting about churches is most church growth, though, is what we would accredit to what we call transfer growth. That is just, somebody thought their church was not as good as this church, and so they just switched churches. So Jesus calls us to be fishers of men, but we're really stillers of other men's aquariums. Um, it's just this church to that church. It's just transfer growth. And, and, and there's something good about transfer growth. I mean, if you're going to a church that, that Jesus isn't being proclaimed or the community's not really strong or the Spirit isn't living you know, in, in a serious way there, great, you know, welcome. But that's not primarily the way Jesus wants to build this church. I, I would love to see a church, our church, be working toward finding people that are unchurched or dechurched or outside of the kingdom coming in. There's plenty of, of harvest out there because again, Jesus said, open your eyes, look at the fields, they're ripe for the harvest. So, what if I just were to say this to us? What if you, every single person here who's a follower of Jesus, were to ask God to give you one or two people that you were to pursue? Just one or two. Maybe it would give you more. But let's just start easy. Just say, God, I need one person who doesn't know Jesus that you're going to put on my heart and wreck me for that I would pursue them. Not to get a notch in my belt, not, not to have them say some you know, prayer to seal the deal, 
But I mean pursue them to love them so that they might come into Jesus. You know how exciting church would be? Some of y'all who have a hard time getting your, your hips out of bed to come to church would be excited to come because you're part of the work. You're not just like, hey, you guys do the work. I'm just going to sit back and drink the coffee. Hope it's good. Hope you take care of my kids. Hope I like this church. Hope I don't talk too long and that it's boring or whatever. But you'd be like, no, like I'm bringing my unsaved coworker today. And they're, they maybe they'll want to get water baptized. You will be front and center, excited, leaning forward, hoping I don't say something stupid, praying for me. God, give that brother wisdom so he doesn't say something stupid to my coworker or my neighbor that I'm bringing to Jesus. Or, or who knows, maybe people getting saved in your front room never end up at Emmaus, but you're able to take them down the street to another church. You know how, excited, how exciting life is when you're actually doing the thing that God made you to do? All of us are made to do this. And, and sometimes, you know, the Bible says things like faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You know what I find with a lot of us? We're bloated, stuffed, heard plenty of sermons, don't want any more because we're not giving out. We're spiritually constipated. We're not building anything. So if you're not building anything, you don't want any more building materials because why ask for the two by fours and the reinforcements and the, 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 the sheetrock to come in when you're not even building anything? You know, Bible study, spiritual life, prayer meetings, worship, and all the things that we do weekly become much more meaningful when you are actually out there putting your blood, sweat, and, blood, sweat, and tears into building God's kingdom with us together. So we sang this song this morning. I like the song, The Reckless Love of God. Somebody wrote a I'm not even going to go there. When I think about that song, I think about the, the, the pursuing, radical, gracious, where sin abounds, their grace abounds much more. The prodigal love of Jesus. I think about that song and the line in there that says, there's just no wall he won't knock down and it, he's just coming after me. He's going he's gonna to break through whatever darkness he's going to come in. He's coming after me. And I started, you know, just that rejoicing of the heart of, yes, God, you just come after us. You leave the 99. And, and then I felt like the Spirit of God said to me, you know how I'm going to do that? I'm going to use you to go after people. So when I start thinking about the pursuing love of God, I start thinking about you guys and saying, you are the pursuing love of God. God would say, I'm going to pursue people through you. That's how I'm going to show them. You know, I was, when I was a high school youth pastor, I'll never forget this kid. His name was Jordan. He's one of my favorite kids that are a big, tall, handsome kid, swimmer, very athletic kid, but had a bad home life, had had some real traumatic things happen in his life. And he just struggled walking with Jesus. And there was this period of time where he just, he wouldn't return any of my phone calls. He just, he was dissing me and he was spinning hard in life. And, and it was before we had cell phones and I could text him or find him on social media. There wasn't any of that. I just knew Jordan was in trouble. And he was like, he was like, my little brother. So I had this like deep connection with Jordan. And uh, so I, I was driving around the city looking for him. I was like, where is this kid? I, I know where he goes to high school. I was waiting out at his high school. I know where he works. I know where his house is. And I just, I, for, for weeks, I was looking for Jordan like he was my lost son. And I remember when I found him, you know, we had this 200 person youth group, but I'm like, I'm spending all this time. I didn't want my pastor to look at my activity log. It's like, shoot, looking for Jordan, looking for Jordan again. You know, that was all I did for weeks. I was looking for Jordan. I finally found him. And we went on a long walk and we started talking. And 
And I was like, man, Jordan, man, I've been looking all over the place for you. Where have you been, bro? And when I said that, he just lost it. Like, big, tough kid, been walking away from Jesus and his parents and just been rebelling, and he just lost it. He's like, Brian, no one has ever chased after me. And I thought, thank God that God put it in my heart for once in my thick-headed life to actually go pursue somebody. So when you start talking about the reckless love of God and singing that, yes for you and yes for the world. Not just for you, but for other people. May God put someone in your life and, and just say, I'm supposed to have this undying love. There are some people, I've said it to some people even here, I would say, you know, if someone else had done this or said this or been this way to me, we wouldn't be friends anymore. But you know what? I'm not giving up on you. Because God has put you in my heart. I have jealous love for you. That's, some, that's spiritual, man. That's stepping into some real Jesus stuff. Do you have one or two people in your life that God's like, those are the people that I want you to pursue. I want you to show reckless love to them so that when you sing this song, you don't just have yourself in mind, you have the world in mind. You have people in your neighborhood that God's put in your life and God's like, you stick to that one. You chase that one. You pursue that one. You befriend that one. You, you don't give up on that person. We are a people that don't give up on people. God doesn't give up on me. I don't give up on people. Too easy to write people off. Here's the challenge for this week, and, and I'm over time, so I'm going to finish and get out of your way. Um, the challenge for us this week are four things. Number one, pray that God would bring someone into your life. If you don't have anybody in your life right now that you could instantly, if I said, pull up your phone, how many non-Christian friends are in your phone list? None? Repent. Get some non-Christian friends. Don't go out getting wild and crazy with them, but get some friends that you're pursuing for Jesus. If you don't have anyone in your life, pray that God would bring somebody into your life. That he goes, that's the one. That's one. That's two. Those are the persons. Number two, find someone to be accountable uh, about with this assignment. So don't just, don't, you're not on a secret mission. You need to confess. I, man, God has put these two people or this one person in my life, and I feel convicted that I'm supposed to, to, to go after them. Have someone in your life that says, how's it going with that neighbor? How's it going with that coworker? How's it going with that family member? Number three, pursue a relationship with the person or persons that God has put in your life. Do something. It's simple. Reach out to them. It doesn't mean that, that tomorrow you're going to preach the gospel and you're going to get saved. That would be awesome. Hey, pray for that. But you know what? You pursue them in relationship. And number four, in that relationship, look for opportunities to talk about the kingdom with that person. Pull a Jesus on them. They just want to start talking about this. Ask God, show me a way to talk about kingdom stuff here. Not in a cheeseball way, but you're going to have to be a little bold here. You got to be some, there's going to be some, some gravitas, some guts, some chutzpah to actually speak out the, the, the name of Jesus and, tell, and preach the gospel. May God make us the kind of people that read a text like this and get wrecked by it. Too easy to just listen. Go, yeah, 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 yeah. Brian talks every week, usually goes too long. Um, but, but that you would actually say, no, like, I feel this. I, I want to be this kind of man and this woman. So I'm... I, I'm, I'm going to push myself. I'm in a season where I feel like God's saying, push yourself. And I'm, I'm, I, I want to run with some people who want to run, run this way. And so I, wa I want to get a crew together that's like, yeah, let's go hard after Jesus and hard after people. We're going to chase after people. We love God. We love people. We're going to do that well. 
We want to love Jesus with abandonment. We want to love the world. We want to love people. We want to make this neighborhood, we want to make this city, we want to make our neighborhoods great for Jesus' name. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we're thankful that it's likely that as we are here this morning, that somebody else pursued us in Jesus' name. Whether it was a parent or a youth pastor or a friend or a coworker, at some point, somebody pursued us enough to show the love of Jesus to us. We just simply want to take the lead from the Samaritan woman and meet you at the well, have our spiritual thirst met, and then go tell others. Come see a man who said everything that I've ever done. I think this is the Messiah. Do something in us, Lord at the wells of our life that would make us the kind of people that would go tell other people about the way that Jesus has formed us. I pray for Emmaus, God. I pray for a renewal, a a, a sense of urgency, a desire to do the work of an evangelist, to win souls, that no one would count themselves out. They would realize this is the work of all of us, not just one of us. This isn't just about the, 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 those who are called evangelists. This is about every single one of us. And Father, I pray that we would begin to see as Easter approaches, but even outside of that, just in, in the weeks and months to follow, stories of, of the way that we're pursuing and chasing after people, the way that you have pursued us. Father, right now, I just pray that each person here would get a person or persons in their heart that you would speak to them and say, I want you to to pursue this relationship for the gospel and for the kingdom. People who don't currently love and follow Jesus. Lord, we don't pray for church growth just to have more butts and seats. But we, we, we would really pray that you would fill this room with men and women who other men and women here are bringing into the kingdom, bringing into the community. I I need to count myself in, Father, so I pray for help. I can be lazy. I can be timid. I can be, uh, I can let this go. I can forget about it. But I pray you you wouldn't let us forget about it, that you would pursue after us so that we might pursue after others. Breathe that revival fire in us, Lord. Breathe that evangelism desire within us, Lord. May we see much, much work done for your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name.